Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Here with me today, I'm fortunate enough to have Amy Cuddy. You have probably seen her 2012 TED Talk. Uh, It was the second most viewed talk in history. She's a Harvard Business School professor, social psychologist. She has written the book most recently, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. And we just started talking pre-show, and we would have talked for another hour had we not stopped ourselves and said, let's actually just start (laughs) recording this, as opposed to just having our private conversation. She's awesome. Um, I'm so, so happy to be able to share her and her perspectives with you. Uh, Amy, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe just share, the to give everybody a little bit of a foundation, if they haven't seen your uh, TED video, and also if they haven't read the book yet, uh, the big idea behind the book. Well, it's, 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 the TED Talk is such a tiny part of the book now. I mean, so let me answer two questions. The, the TED Talk was really about kind of a couple of things. One, we, we often are filled with self-doubt and this feeling that we're a phony and we're going to be found out and we don't deserve to be where we are. And, uh, and that anxiety is really debilitating. Um, and it, it's really ultimately about feeling powerless And one way that you can feel more powerful is to change your body language, to use more expansive, open posture, which is what dominant animals do, whether they're humans or non-humans. And so just as power makes us expand our bodies, expanding our bodies makes us feel more powerful. And that allows us to get, get out of that imposter syndrome loop. So that's what the TED Talk was about. But it's such a profound idea, right? It's such a profound idea that um, our minds don't control everything that in fact our bodies control stuff and that the mind-body connection isn't a one-way route, right? That, like already mind-body connection, some people have a hard time with, but the fact that it's a a two-way road and that the body is affecting the mind is profound. Well, it's funny because, you know, as we were just discussing before we got, uh, we started recording, it's not really profound because, you know, people have been practicing things like yoga for thousands of years and, exercising and doing things, you know, breathing deeply and doing things that they know will make them feel better. So they've been aware of it. But I think that sort of from an intellectual perspective, because our minds are the ones deciding which thing gets status, mind or body, of course, it gives itself status, right? So the mind gives itself more credit than it deserves. So that's why I think we've been neglecting the, the, the idea that the body might be actually leading the conversation with the mind more than the other way around. Well, and I think it's, it's you know, what, what makes it most challenging also is that not only, not only is that true, right, that, that's, that, that the mind is the one who's deciding what to believe, but you're teaching at Harvard, and, and the research academy is very, very weighted to the mind, Right. So it's, uh, you know, academia is all about the mind. So at any point at which you say something else controls the mind than the mind, um, I, I imagine creates a, a, a backlash, you know, a, a number of people who find that idea very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, I should say it's of course you are more 
tuned in to the ones who are pushing back, right? Because right. we're human. But uh, I mean, I am. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that more broadly it's accepted, but, but definitely there are some people who not only reject it, but like energetically reject it, like put time into rejecting it and thinking of more reasons why it can't be so than I have time in the day. Like, I don't honestly even understand how they have the, that amount of time right, to, right. to spend thinking of reasons to reject it. Like why it's so important to them to reject this idea. Yeah, why is it? I, I mean, it's a I great think question. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, I, I think I would say that people who feel so strongly that this can't be true are people with a real serious mind-body disconnect, right, who probably don't have a good you know, conversation going on between the mind and the body in, in either direction, right? So they just can't imagine that their bodies might have control. But I also think that it makes us feel primitive and we are primitive. It's a primitive thing. The fact that the body can, you know, cha move in a different way and change the way the mind feels is pretty primitive. And I think that we like to think ourselves as separate from the other animals. I actually like that. I like that it's primitive. I, I love actually it think, too. Yeah, I think that's really great. Well, so this brings us, this is a nice connection to the book, right? Because in some ways, the book begins to answer the question, what happened? What do you do with those critics? How do you hold your own in the context of those critics? How do you, you know, it, I don't want to make too big a deal of critics because I think you have, you know, adoring fans that far exceed your critics. The book, though, is about how to stand powerfully in who you are and in yourself and and face whatever is there in front of you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, well, it, I mean, of course, right now it is my biggest challenge, right? I, I wrote a book about biggest challenges and, and we always have biggest challenges and that is mine right now. Um, and I mean, there are a couple of things. One is that I do hear from so many thousands of people and the, the number of negative emails I receive, maybe honestly one in 500, that they are, the people that take the time to write are sharing all kinds of stories about how they use this work to overcome challenges. So, and they're from all over the world, like more than a hundred countries and equal numbers of women and men and old people and young people and this whole range. So that is incredibly reassuring. You know, I just, I'm in the middle of a book tour and in the last six weeks, I've signed, I think, 10,000 books and met those people coming through signing lines. That's so uh, life affirming, you know, to have these people coming out, not just to buy your book, right? Because it's not a book. It's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's a book that has positive meaning for people. Like they're coming out to say, hey, I want to share my story with you. Like, I want to be part of this bigger thing. You know, I, I want to I want you to share my story with other people. So that's really affirming. Um, the you know the stuff that happens in the field is partly just academia. You know people right. fight, and they they can fight in really ugly ways. And I I'm I am not an ugly fighter, and and that rattles me. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely rattles my worldview when people are get really nasty, and and I haven't done anything nasty to them. I don't get where it comes from. But what I do have to remind myself of is that, you know, I study power and powerlessness and often that nastiness actually comes from feelings of powerlessness. You know, so often the people who are the nastiest or just let's even get out of academia and talk about trolls on the Internet. They're not people 
who are sitting at home feeling powerful. They're feeling totally powerless, and that's why they're doing those things. You know, it's funny. I when I first started writing, and I was first writing articles for you know for Harvard and for CNN, and I. I remember writing this one article. I can't even exactly remember what the article was, but I got like some real backlash. And I, um, you know, it was, it was on a form where I could, uh, format where I could email them back. And I actually emailed some of these people back with both some empathy of like where they were coming from and explanation. And it was the very beginning of, of the writing that I was doing. And, and I, was, I was curious about that same thing. And their tone to, to, a, to a one of them, I mean, every single one of them, their tone fundamentally changed when they kind of recognized, ooh, there's someone on the other side of this. You know, there's someone listening. Yeah. There's someone, like, I actually spoke to someone. I didn't just, like, you know, barf out whatever it was that I was thinking in that particular moment. Yeah, I thought about doing that, too. I mean... I mean, you can't spend your life doing you that. Cannot, right? It's too time-consuming. But the few times I have, I f- find the same thing. People are completely disarmed. Right, right. Which which also speaks to what you write about in your book in terms of coming at something with authenticity and that, you know, uh, coming at a fight with another fight isn't particularly useful, but coming with some vulnerability and some openness and some realness changes the tone and, and the power dynamic very quickly, yeah. I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and the funny thing is that by responding to these people, I mean, people always say don't feed the trolls and so on and so forth, but that's sort of anonymous feeding of the trolls. When you actually respond as a human, as a person, it in, in some ways it makes them feel seen and it gives them a sense of power, a healthy sense of power, right? So, so they're able to then engage in a more human way. I love that. What advice do you have for people around... Um, showing up in that way, meaning around showing up in a vulnerable way, in a way in which, you know, you might talk to an aggressor or, you know, a, a someone who's who's aggressive with you or or even, you know, not someone not aggressive to you, but you're you're showing up in front of people. And so many of us walk around in our masks, right, in our in, in a kind of veneer of who we think people expect us to be. Yeah. And and they never feel the real us, and so they never really trust us, and then we end up walking around in these sort of shallow relationships. How do we build the courage, in a sense, to come out as ourselves? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, it's it's not an overnight process, and I'm not saying you know I, I I'm I, I'm not a step by step kind of person mm-hmm. because I think that our individual personalities and situations interact with how we do things, but. I think that these are some of the components. One is that you really need to understand what are the core values that make you who you are. And I'm not talking about this sort of corporate core values kind of thing, you know, where it's a little bit generic and it's the core value that that you're told your corporation cares. But the things that they don't have to be moralistically kind of uh, uh, superior. Like your value could be that you enjoy music. Like that, that, that that's just part of who you are. And without that, you just would be a different person, right? So you have to figure, figure out what are the things that make you who you are and then reflect on them. Why do they make you who you are? Write about a time when you express that core value. That's called self-affirmation. People think self-affirmation is when you're about to go skiing and you tell yourself, I'm the best skier in the world. <laughs> that is not self-affirmation. That's self-deception. And, 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 not, and not a good idea. Right. That's self-destruction. And we don't believe ourselves, and so it backfires. The right. real self-affirmation is telling yourself who you truly are. 
that activity alone dramatically reduces people's stress and anxiety and even their levels of cortisol and epinephrine, so stress hormones. So by self-affirming before something like a math test, even if what you write about is that you love family, you will do better on the math test and you will be much less stressed out while you take the math test. So self-affirmation is really important to do before your big challenges. But then you have to, when you walk into that situation, continue to believe your story. And I'm not saying that your story can't change, but what happens often is that, say you're going to take a math test and you actually are a good mathematician and you know these things well, sometimes the the situation feels so threatening because the stakes are high and you know you're going to be judged that you choke, right? You, you, you get filled with self-doubt. So all of these things that you actually know are no longer accessible to you, which is crazy, right? You have the math knowledge, but self, you can't bring it out when you need to. So that's sort of about not believing your story, right? It's suddenly you, somebody else's presence makes you doubt your own story. And we need to... Um, you know, get ourselves to a place where we don't go in and, and have that, that happen. Then, you know, during the actual challenge, you have to prevent yourself from collapsing. And in many ways, like, so people will start to say, say they're speaking, they'll speed up their speech, they don't take pauses, they start breathing really fast and shallowly, um, they start wrapping themselves up, holding their arms, touching their faces, all of these things that people do when they feel powerless or that animals do when they are about to be attacked by a predator, people do when they're in these high stress situations. And the thing is, it might be adaptive if you were about to be attacked by a tiger, but most of us are not. Most of us are just in a situation where someone might not like us. So becoming more powerless physically does not help us. In fact, it hurts us. So you have to resist that urge to collapse. So I even recommend doing things like if you're a person who starts to collapse while you're speaking, hold a glass of water or a slide advancer or something that will force you to spread your arms out. If you feel yourself speeding up, stop, pause. It's powerful. It's a punctuation mark. It allows you to collect your thoughts. It allows other people to process what you just said. Slow down your movement. Pull your shoulders back. Breathe deeply. All of these things signal to the nervous system that you are not in a fight or flight situation. You know, it seems to me that there's something in that moment. I know I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing myself in the moment that you're describing. And I think my biggest problem is the conversation that's going on in my head that's not particularly useful. So I lose my ability to hold my power in those moments because I'm thinking, ooh, I'm losing the crowd or, oh, wow, they've, you know, they're, they're, I'm not looking good here, or they're just throwing these arguments at me, and they're not gonna—they're not really listening, and I lose my ground, mm -hmm. right? And I wonder how—I mean—and maybe this is what the power postures are in many ways, but but I don't want to—you know—your book presence is so much more than your TED talk, as you described. So it's—it's it's not all about the power postures, but I wonder how in that moment, right? You talk in the book about the afterwit, you know, mm -hmm. like the the comment you wish you had said. Yeah. In that moment, how we clear our heads to, to not lose ourselves in that moment and be able to stand on our feet and stand up strong and slow ourselves down. Well, I, I know it seems like I'm being circular here, but, but it really, I do find that just notice, first noticing what are the things that make you collapse, that's the first step. So you might not be able to prevent yourself from doing it at first, but just 
noticing, oh, wow, I'm I'm wrapping myself up. Why am I doing that? So figuring out what are the things that trigger you to feel powerless, that's the first step. The second step is to notice when you physically start doing it and then to force yourself to open up. Even as I said, it can be in just one of those ways. But just honestly, breathing deeply, slowing your breathing is incredibly powerful. So I think that there are a lot of things that you can do that are very simple, but you do it slowly over time. You nudge yourself. You you make a little bit of progress each time and then you put the pieces together and it gets so much easier. Not overnight. You look back six months later and say, wow, this is so much easier uh, than it was before. Yeah. And I, I love what you said. And I loved reading what you said about self-affirmations because I've been one of these people who, you know, like the Smalley, Stuart Smalley, you know, Stuart Smalley thing, you know, I'm beautiful. I'm and I look at that and I go, come on, like I have lots of friends who believe in affirmations, but I, you know, my response and I don't really say anything because it's not for me to say anything. I don't want to be that guy, right? Who's kind of saying, oh, that's dumb. But I, but I, I notice in my own head, I have this sense of like, don't convince yourself. There's nothing more dangerous than going to the top of the ski slope and saying, I can ski, it's I can ski worst. and then not actually being able to ski. But I love what you said about it, how you define it, because I think that's so useful and critical as like a self-affirmation is a reminder of who you are and that you act from that place. And I wonder, I mean, that seems to be so key to your answer and so key to holding our ground, which is, you know, we lose ourselves when we give more power to someone else than they deserve in a sense, I think. And so if I come back to going, look, I'm, I'm sharing my view, you know, even with you and working with your critics or with me and working with my critics, to be able to say, like, what what I share will not be accepted by everybody, and that's okay. Yes. And that and and it's and I don't actually feel the need anymore. I used to, but I don't feel any, any the need anymore to convince anyone of it. Like I, I feel like my um, I feel like there's power in in the writing that I do and in the speaking that I do, and and I feel like really happy about sharing that and. I don't, it's, it's kind of like I want to empower people to either accept it or not accept it, but it's not my job to convince them of it. I wonder if that's a little harder in academia, but it's, but maybe not. The reason it's harder in academia is because if you don't convince them, you lose your job. But, um, <laughs> but it, no, I feel the same way now. I, I feel like, because I found a message that I so deeply believe in that I, you know, it will either resonate with people or it won't but it doesn't rattle how I feel about the message, right? It doesn't change how I feel about the message. And I also feel that by not forcing it on people, they're much more open to it. Um, and, and what, you know, your authenticity in delivering it is really what people are responding to. If they see that you believe it, they, they, they can trust you and be much more open to what you're saying, um, which is why we, it's so hard to watch political debates and believe what politicians are saying because they're over-promising right and left, and we know they're being inauthentic, um, and it feels bad, you know, viscerally yeah. it feels bad. And I also think, I think that's absolutely right, and I think, you know, when, when I, again, when, when I read your book and I, um, and I think about this conversation too, the, the natural slowing down, the natural pausing, it, it's when I do it, it's not a strategy as much as it is a reality. Meaning if someone's throwing something at me, I actually want to think about it. And so I have to pause and say, hold on, let me think about that for a minute. And I'll think about it. 
And I have instant credibility when I do that. I'm actually thinking about it. I'm not pretending to think about no, it. I'm actually thinking about it. But it's but the, it changes the nature of the conversation as opposed to coming out with something really fast. And then they come out with something very fast. And then we're in a competition of wit, which as a you know Jewish New Yorker, I'm very familiar with. And you know I've had a lot of experience with. And I don't particularly like anymore. Like I'm not so into like competitions of wit. But I am really into authentic conversation. So I'm willing to slow down. And if they're not willing to slow down, we're in different conversations. And then the conversation just sort of naturally ends. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I yeah, sorry. I, I, was, I was thinking about a friend of mine who is kind of like that. And he said he hates people who are earnest. <laughs> I'm like, how can you hate people who are earnest? He's like, they're, they bother me. I'm like, I don't get that. That's really uh, funny. But, but no, I agree that, that, um, that the, 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 the actually like listening and processing and then responding, it increases the intimacy and the quality of the connection dramatically, like exponentially, because you are, you know, you're, you're validating them just by saying, I'm going to take the time to listen, right? I'm going to give you my time. But also, you're, you're saying, I'm open to having my mind changed by you. And I see you. So that, that's just, it's so much more powerful than this bam, bam, bam kind of uh, uh, kind of communication that, that we're kind of getting used to now. Yeah, and, and uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that's really true. And, and I think about, like, the people that I'm interested in being around, you know, like your counter to your friend. Like, I'm really interested in being around people who haven't decided things, who aren't sure about things necessarily, who are thinking things through, who are curious and who are engaged in in kind of meeting life where it is and exploring it, as opposed to people who have all the answers. And I, I used to have all the answers. There's a great bumper sticker I saw that said, hire a, oh, hire a teenager while he still knows everything. I heard teenagers move out now while you still know everything. But it's great. And, and uh, you know, people who know things have become so much less interesting to me than people who are exploring things and curious about things and experimenting with things. Yeah, I feel the same way. There's a there's a childlike quality, but that doesn't mean it's a person who's not wise. Exactly. Right? And, and that's something that took me a while to learn. My my husband is and because I, I, I'm, I'm remarried and my husband is um, such a, like a person who finds some kind of excitement in everything, like every person he meets is the most interesting person he's ever met. And he truly in that moment feels that way. You know, and it's, I might have seen that 10 years ago as childish, but now I see it as like delightfully childlike and also wise at the same time. Like what a great way to go through life to think everything's beautiful in its own way. You know? It's amazing. You know, it's funny because I was, I was reminded when you were talking earlier too about critics um, I was, I remember this when I was in college and I was in a um, modern literature class, right? And it, we were reading these amazing books and I was sitting there and it was a small group. Um, it was actually, we were dealing with feminist literature and everybody was coming up with everything that was wrong about the book that we were reading. Like everybody was looking, you know, they were saying this didn't work and oh, this didn't yeah. work. And I was sitting back and I was just watching this and I was realizing, you know, it's this thing where to be critical, to be a critic of this stuff, you know, is is what gives us prestige and power. But we're reading the best literature of the 20th century or 21st century. I mean, like amazing, amazing literature. 
And it kind of, so I took this different tact, which is I said, look, I want to share what I thought was amazing about this book, like what it did here and it did there and the way this character developed and this. And I promise you, people looked at me like I was a complete total idiot. Like I just like, I was just blind to how bad this book really was, even though, you know, it was like one of the great, great books. And I just, I mean, that's sort of when I decided not to go into academia. (laughs) This used to happen. We had this journal club at Princeton and we're grad students, like we're not experts yet. And we're reading these people's articles and people are just tearing these things apart. First of all, like a tiny percentage of articles are accepted, right? And now you're finding that they are complete crap and everything's wrong with them. And I always would try to say, yeah, but look at this idea. Like, this is really generative. Like, this is really interesting. And maybe the methods aren't perfect, but wow, we really got something out of this. And they honestly, they would look at me like, what an idiot. How did you? So you know what? My story of college was from Princeton too. So let's just hope that this wasn't just Princeton and maybe (laughs) it's, it's in other places too. Um, Amy, we have to end. I, I, it's such a pleasure having you on the show. And I'm sure that this will be, I'm hoping that this will be the beginning of many conversations that we have. Well, it will have to be. We just scratched the surface. I, we sure did. The book is Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. It's, it's as lovely as you are. It's as smart as you are. And I really loved having this conversation. Thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.